This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop. And hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest of my podcast this week is Nimrod Piel, CEO of Cord. The average SME today, Okta says, has over 90 different SaaS tools. So I saw how these companies work internally with a lot of tools that are bought. They're not built in. They don't have this connective tissue. And so all of the communication around the tools, the tools are all built single player and all the communication around them gets stuffed into, again, Slack and Inbox. And I also saw that this is a problem because these are B2B SaaS vendors. This is a problem for their clients. This is Nimrod. He's been a software pioneer from the very first start. He's got over 20 years of experience in development, data science and product management and decided in 2019 it was time to make the jump to take on the entrepreneur role. He loved thinking about how we work and how we can actually make that experience better. And this is exactly why he started Court. With a team of designers, engineers and product craftspeople that have collected some secrets from their 10 years at leading companies such as Google, Facebook and Adobe, they're on a mission to leverage those secrets to make collaboration at work more effective. And this inspired me. And hence I invited Nimrod to my podcast. We explore what is broken in the way SMEs can create true value from their ever-growing SaaS stack. We discuss the underlying problem and what needs to change in the mindset of the SaaS vendor community to cross the chasm that will bring more value for all. Lastly, Nimrod shares his views on what it takes to build a SaaS business that cannot be ignored. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, why the winners in the next decade in SaaS will be the ones that are building cross-platform collaboration inside our tools. Secondly, why complacency in SaaS is the biggest risk of becoming irrelevant and what to do about it. Thirdly, how turning away a lot of business can be a very solid way to grow fast. And fourthly, you will learn about the secret to create a viral effect with the product that you build. So hi, Nimrod. Thank you for making the time available today and being a guest on my podcast. Hi, Tan. Nice to meet you. And thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, I mean, I'm always on the hunt for compelling stories about the value that we can create 
when technology and people blend in the right way. And that's what I found in your company, Court. When I think I heard about it through an email that I always read in the weekends, you know, the emails from AI Inside It. And that's where I triggered something. And I looked at your website and yeah, I found the passion. I found the mission you're on is a compelling one. And it's about making these people do better things with the help of technology. We call it out. Let's make people do become better versions of themselves with the help of technology. Typically also in a collaborative way with their peers. So yeah, it's going to be a fun conversation, particularly also because your company is quite new. It got founded, well, it really started beginning of 2020. And of course, then the world became a different world. Absolutely. So I'm really eager to hear the stories about that and like what you went through and what were, were important decisions that you had to make. Before we start there, a little bit about yourself. If you had to describe yourself in a couple of keywords as an entrepreneur or as a person, what would you use? Ooh, that's tough. I think I'm very curious. I think I had like several different careers all in tech, but I went through a lot of different roles and always sort of excited and curious about what the next rollover that I didn't do yet does. And I think that's what led me to being a founder. I think also I'm kind of a reluctant founder. You know, a lot of my friends, because of my background, we didn't go into that yet, but like I was very lucky and fortunate to be, you know, part of a Israeli military unit that a lot of the Israeli tech scene started from and 20 years ago. And so I saw a lot of the sort of beginnings of tech as we know it today. And a lot of my friends were founders and I never thought that I fit the profile that I could do it myself. And I sort of almost like found myself doing this after a lot of, you know, personal debate and sort of not being sure that I'm ready for it. Maybe that's a good place to start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I recently had someone on my podcast and he said he did it deliberately because he wanted to learn based on the, well, without having to pay the cost for the learnings himself. He did all kinds of jobs and up to the point where he thought, okay, and now I'm ready. You know, and sometimes, and that is a good way to segue here, like what sparked it, you know? Yeah, what sparked the idea to create your company? And maybe in relation to that, what is the big idea behind it? Sure. So yeah, so maybe let's start with what we do because it'll explain how we got to it. What Core does is adds collaboration into any software tool that you use. So just like people leave comments in Google Docs in line inside the Google Doc, or if some of the listeners are designers, they might have heard of or used Figma, which also took you know, the world of design by storm. It rose from 8% to 58% market share in a $30 billion market in just three years, overtaking incumbents that were there for you know, a decade or several decades, like yeah. Adobe and Vision and so on. And they did it on the back um, building software that is multiplayer, where people can collaborate inside the software. And so we realized that this is, it was a personal pain of mine. I'll talk a little bit about how I got to it, but we realized this is something that all software needs to be. And the winners in the next sort of decade in SaaS will be the ones that are building collaboration into their tools. And so we're enabling companies to do that. It benefits both the end users, which there's all kinds of reasons we can go into later where they find it 
a way to work that's much more focused and faster and keep in flow and keeps the data more sort of easier to reach than stuffing all of your communication in inbox and slack and copying and pasting screenshots and links everywhere and on the other hand it serves the SaaS vendors because it gives them you know a very natural way to have increased seat expansion increased retention it's a great value prop it, it makes their product more powerful and, and grows their network effects and the way we reached it is actually that I worked as a product manager at Facebook for quite a few years and built internal tools there and Facebook alongside very few companies that are at the top of the tech sort of you know scale so it's like Facebook Google Amazon Apple basically they don't buy they almost don't buy external solution they build a whole lot internally True. there were literally hundreds of internal tools at Facebook that number is probably in the four digits today built by internal engineers including stuff that you wouldn't imagine that Facebook would have a reason to build like instead of buying a BI solution like tableau or looker or one of the amazing other solutions that are out there they built a whole sort of BI dashboarding system completely internally and there's all kinds of reasons that Facebook does it and could do it and And most of them are not relevant for most other companies outside, but it does mean that there's connective tissue between all of these tools. So they're all built on the same framework. And coming from product management, we love to highlight these like tiny little details that make such a huge difference in, in strategy and, and markets. And one of these little details is, for example, in all of the internal tools at Facebook, there is A notification widget at the top right of the screen like a little bell icon mm-hmm. and that bell icon has the notifications from across all of your tools so you could be notified to go into like a marketing dashboard because there was some dip in some campaign and the next notification would be from an HR tool True. because you need to approve PTO for your employee or whatever so you go between all these tools. and then I left Facebook. Five and a half years in, my daughter was born. You know, we live in London with no family support. The lifestyle of being, you know, a product manager at Facebook meant very, very long hours, late meetings with San Francisco, flying out a lot. And I decided it's, you know, my chapter there is over and I should move on. And um, I started looking for what to do next. And I started advising friends of mine who were founders of other B2B SaaS companies. And then I sort of, you know, after... Five and a half years, which in tech is eternity, I sort of missed sure. a whole sort of wave of SaaS, you know, growing from, you know, the sort of early 2010s to the late 2010s. And the average SME today, Okta says, has over 90 different SaaS tools. Okay. So I saw how these companies work internally with a lot of tools that are bought, they're not built in, they don't have this connective tissue. And so all of the communication around the tools, the tools are all built single player and all the communication around them gets stuffed into, again, Slack and Inbox. And I also saw that this is a problem because these are B2B SaaS vendors. This is a problem for their clients. Sure. Their clients are teams of people that work with these B2B SaaS, you know, sort of dashboards and platforms. And they... also can't communicate in line and leave comments for the you know person that will come in in two weeks time and we'll need to remember that you know this was configured this way or you know we need feedback on that or whatever is the case and so we decided to you know this sort of spark the idea 
to build a way to collaborate in any software that you use? Well, I've made a couple of notes and I think you hit the essence on a number of areas. That, first of all, I like the term connective tissue because that is really what it's all about. I come from a world where the company I used to work for, Unit 4, built ERP solutions. So it's really like a whole range of solutions into one. The real benefit at the end of having a fully integrated solution is the connective tissue that things work the same across a whole range of across all the processes of your business, core back office processes. The other thing that, that stood out to me is flow. And I think that is indeed that's what's broken if you don't have it. And I think possibly that is the biggest challenge that a lot of companies struggle with, whether they actually realize it or not. You know, when you're saying that SMBs on average work with 90 different SaaS solutions, I mean, I'm a solo entrepreneur and I think I already use 20. So, I mean, that is probably right and probably on the low side. And all of these products have a reason to exist and don't communicate with each other. Yeah. So what do you believe is the opportunity when you're done, when the world has embraced court like the other example that you gave? <laughs> yeah, well, if we're successful, I think we can tilt how we communicate. And I think a good pointer to this is Slack. So this author that I really like, Cal Newport, he wrote a lot about work and he has a book called Deep Work and another one that's called, I forget, I'm blanking on the name, a very recent one about a world without email. And the point that Cal makes is that email was kind of an accidental innovation that changed how we work entirely, not just because we moved, you know, something we did in one way into email, but because our entire patterns of work, our entire, the way we organize the office changed. And similarly, I mean, it used to be an adage in sort of tech that like email can't be disrupted and people who came in and tried to like, you know, build new companies that would move people off of email were usually laughed at until Slack came around and absolutely did it and, you know, caused Microsoft to copy them over with MS Teams. And now there's a different way of work that's based on these channels. And there's a lot of advantages in it, but it also is worse for a lot of reasons. So in these channels, you're in everyone's inbox. And what happens is when you're trying to do transactions and complete some piece of work inside a SaaS tool, yeah. when you need someone else for approval, feedback, handoff, you know, any kind of need that you have from a teammate, you have to copy and paste a link and or a screenshot or do something that I call the text adventure, which is instead of copying and pasting the link or the screenshot, you just go and write a message. It says, oh, go into Salesforce, go into that account, click this, do that. And you do it in a channel. But what yeah. happens is when you command tab to move into Slack, you already see that there's 17 other channels that are bolded white, which means there's other messages for you in there. You, instead of going in and just doing this piece of work, get distracted to clear all of these notifications, all of these other channels. Most of them don't really affect you right now. Sure. They're a distraction because these are essentially everyone's inboxes. And so you start going into each one and reading all the messages, whatever. By the time you're finished, you're completely like your brain is just wiped out of the context yeah. of what you did before. And when you go back to the tool, there's no hint. There's nothing that remains there that 
tells the next person that there was a conversation about this. It's buried somewhere in Slack. It yeah. rolls out of the screen. It's basically, you can't ever find it again. And people don't do it when they have a choice not to. So nobody sends a message in Slack and says, oh, look at this Google Doc. Look at page six, line 21. Can you change this to that? It's just say comments in line, right? So Slack becomes, I think Kevin Kwok talked about it in a very good blog he posted called The Arc of Collaboration. Yeah. And he said, you know, Slack is sort of the default handler for places where we have no other way to communicate what we do. And so that's where, you know, our belief is that we can like, if this is successful, we bend the arc of collaboration into a place where Slack is still useful for one-on-one discussions, let's grab coffee, or for company announcements that don't have a context in the sense of like, they, you know, belong to a work item. But the 90% of people at the bottom of the sort of, you know, organizational pyramid or the top of the organizational tree, if you want to draw it upside down, the, the individual contributors, they just want to get work done. Let me make a small interruption here. Nimrod just made a critical remark that defines the success of his business, going to the essence of what it means for users to get things done. Too often, when we build our SaaS products, we focus on an element of the work and don't take an end-to-end perspective. We believe the work is centered around our product and forget that we're part of a broader process where other solutions play a key role as well. Core's starting point was connecting all those dots and focusing on the essence, get work done fast. This is a trait remarkable software companies master. They focus on the essence, and then they create new value possibilities that are both valuable and desirable. This drives their momentum and even creates virality. But this is something that you can master as well. How? Simply go to valueinspiration.com and grab a free Kindle version of my book, The Remarkable Effect. I guarantee you, new inspirations will spark within the next 30 minutes. Back to the interview. They just work in these SaaS tools running their, you know, marketing campaigns or doing logistics and operations or or coding or doing DevOps work. They just want to, you know, move this work forward inside these tools and they need a place to communicate effectively without having to command tab out of context. And that's where we come in. So I think ideally everyone will just have it in every tool and they'll have a unified, uniform way of collaborating with a unified inbox, which is what Cord gives you. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it's so so recognizable, you know, and that's what I see indeed with email, and I see this Slack as well. The moment you start going there, you see the rest, and it distracts, and it just gets you going in the wrong end, in the wrong way. So, yeah, I mean, you, you already mentioned a couple of those tools: email, then there is Slack. Of course, Slack has an enormous market share. So it actually is a quite a bold move to come to to say, okay, we're going to do something completely different here and be the alternative or the better alternative to Slack, possibly. How did you go about it? I think it is bold, but I think what sort of gave me a lot of tailwind or like a lot of, again, I was kind of a reluctant founder and what gave me a lot of belief that this could happen is that we're, again, serving two constituents. We're, one is the end user because the end user wants to be in focus. They want to work faster. They want to work more simply. And we see it when collaboration is 
afforded to them. And again, sort of the biggest examples are Google Docs, Notion, Figma, but there are a lot of other vendors in every category that are building collaboration into yeah. their tools yeah, today. Sure, When they're given that, they want to use it. So it's a natural sort of phenomenon in a way. And the second is the SaaS vendors. The SaaS vendors love it again because it gives them you know, a way to give the user more value, which helps with their value prop, which helps with their retention as more users in the org use this and which helps with their expansion and more yeah. people get to see it and get used. So because you have, you're writing something that you have a lot of constituents that want it and you're only sort of, you know, the only people we could arguably detract anything from are the, you know, a couple of very, very massive players. This gives me a lot of, you know, sort of sense that this is supported by the market, right? I guess so. I mean, there's always, of course, certain things that work. And I mean, Slack is fantastic for some things and it's not so good for other things. So there's, there's always an opportunity. And if you, I think if you look at the use cases, you can find the right problems out there. Exactly. Solve them in a new way. There's room for growth. So what did you, I mean, kind of going, so winding back to the point where you started and you started building the solution, knowing what was already available on the market, And you just also mentioned that in Facebook, kind of the mantra is everything is we build ourselves. How did you go about that? I mean, what did you decide to do? And what did you, for example, so decide deliberately not to do in terms of the strategic product choices? Yeah, I think one of the things that we're still grappling with strategically is we believe that the best outcome for users is that they have a uniform way of collaborating. So we believe if we imagine, if we jump sort of forward into a potential future, and in that potential future, core doesn't exist, and people built their own collaboration into every piece of software, because I think that's a trend that's just going to yeah. be like, a, that's a, a sort of secular shift in the market. What will happen is you'll have collaboration that is sort of clunky. It works a little bit different in every single tool. Sure. In this tool, you can't attach files. This one doesn't connect to Slack. This one, you can at mention people, but they get notified only on email, not at whatever. There's going to be all kinds of little changes. Sure. And these tiny details, again, as a product manager, I sort of feel how pivotal they are in how markets end up being shaped. And we believe that you need a uniform interface that is best of breed, that gives you everything you can do in all the other best collaboration tools that keeps advancing, where you can just have a single profile, sort of sort your settings out. How do I want to be notified? You know, maybe I want to use voice messages with transcription, or maybe I want to do, you know, live video calls when we're both on the same page at the same time. I want to have all of these abilities and I want to have them in, in a uniform way, which I recognize. But today, you know, Very frankly, some SaaS vendors are jumping on that vision. Some SaaS vendors are, you know, jumping on it because we offer a great solution at a low cost and it's worthwhile for them. But some SaaS vendors are, are sort of reluctant to jump on. They want to see, you know, others <laughs> jump on this first before they go and say, all right, well, this is the best form of collaboration. I'm not going to bother with designing my own one and spending a whole lot of time with my PMs and designers and something that isn't my core focus, just because I want to like build it to look, you know, the way I 
had envisioned it, right? That's a strategic decision that we made to like stand our ground and say, you know, there's a lot of business we're turning away basically because we're saying, hey, we're not going to componentize this and let you like design every single thing about it. We think there's, you know, both to serve the users and to move faster to, you know, a perfect solution. You should just, you know, trust that we're the experts and collaboration will build it the right way. It's a matter of time at the end, you know, that's where momentum comes in and adoption. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, to copy, I mean, we talked about a couple of very, very large vendors out there. When Steve Jobs was out there and he was still alive, one of the things he, of course, he was full of was innovation is not about what you say yes to, but what you say no to. So were there any things that you said, okay, this is the boundary. This is what we say. This is what we don't do. Uh, yeah, well, to be I, different in this case. I think, yeah, that's like, it's very inspiring words. It's good to hear because this is a struggle I have daily. It's, you know, <laughs> as a business owner and probably the listeners who are business owners know how hard it is to say no to prospects and to clients that want your service, that like it, but they just want to have this modification or that modification. And you see a vision that, you know, they don't necessarily share or they haven't gotten around to or they you know for whatever reason they want it differently and you just have to like turn around so it's it's very hard to do but that's the no that we're saying is mostly today around making a sort of totally customizable experience and we are customizable in a lot of ways you can white label it you can control a lot of the power tools that come with the tool you can control the identity model a lot of important bits But there's sort of, especially in very, very small starting SaaS, you know, they still are fleshing out how their product looks and feels, and they have a very strong vision themselves. And they, once they they set their minds on it, it's really hard to sort of... Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, of course, they also look for that unified experience. So it's, I know how hard it is because it's an embedded strategy. Yeah. And for those companies, it's a choice. Is this going to be defensible differentiation for us? Yes, we are going to do it ourselves. Or is this something that another can be far better with? And therefore, well, we can create more speed and we don't have to worry about it. But at the end, part of your solution, you trust on others. I mean, I've come from this world of Unit 4. We also had, we acquired a lot of companies in the past. At some point, the dream was to build an underlying platform that we build things once and then share a lot. But even within the same company, the same ownership, it is enormously challenging to get that going yeah to that point even that some of the companies inside the business were sometimes prioritizing working with partners rather than picking up a solution from within the own family simply because of the fact that they then, then they didn't have to defend that the user interface was different yeah uh, i hear so you I, on that. I completely get that yeah even in facebook we had all these internal tools, there were multiple contenders for the same job. There were like four or five experimentation tools. There were, there were a bunch of tools doing the same job, rewritten again and again, because people yeah. just wanted it a little bit differently. But here I'm really inspired by Jeff Lawson, the founder of Twilio, who talks about, very neatly talks about the software supply chain. Basically says, you know, it used to be the case in the early years of automobiles that the automobile company built all the parts like they had a factory and they built the doors and and today the modern automobile company really just sort of constructs a lot of 
you know, they have a complicated supply chain. There's thousands of parts. The seat belts are from a factory in Poland. The, you know, seats are from a factory, whatever. And they just do the assembly, essentially, and branding and sort. And this is how the cars roll off the factory floor. And they handle the, right, they're the brand. They handle the customer relationships and so on. In the same way, he says, you know, in software, we're seeing this progressive sophistication of the market where there is going to be these SaaS vendors that end up serving teams. And there's going to be a whole lot of software that serves these SaaS vendors. You can see it already, obviously, with stuff like payments and Twilio, of course, and communication. And I think it's going to penetrate more and more into things that are, you know, what we think of as a part of the user-facing part of the software, the doors and the seatbelts, right? And I very much think collaboration is one of these. And it just requires a, a mental shift to see that people want to collaborate the same way that they do in other tools in their stack. And you're just a part of their workflow and you get much more from slotting into that network of tools that already support Cord than sort of building it out yourself and sweating it. And just to get something that, you know, looks a little bit different because that's what, you know, your designers had in mind and sits a little bit differently within the app. Yeah. And I mean, that goes back to the things we talked about before. You know, it kills flow. And if flow is killed, you know, companies are, it's costly to companies. Productivity is not good enough. The work is not being done correctly, possibly with errors, with on time. And I mean, it just makes things more complicated and we don't even realize it because the market has also been educated like that, that all of these tools, of course, are yeah different. You know, it's if you buy an ERP from SAP and you buy an HR solution from, from Workday, yeah, they 100%. were created in the same room. And as a consequence, there's yeah interaction and that's where friction i think that's the right word is created so what has been the hardest not to crack for you in this in the, the period that you've been yeah pushing this Oof, wow there's so many you know it's really tough as a founder you jump between right all of these activities you know hiring is hard it's hard for everyone right now there's a lot of technological challenges in what we build that are fascinating for me coming from engineering, but maybe not to all of your podcast listeners. Like, you know, I spoke about one of these in the sort of collaboration, uh, sort of getting all the SaaS vendors to see the vision of, of unified collaboration. And um, again, a, a lot of them do, but not all of them do. Yeah, that's possibly, again, an interesting one in itself because it, it goes about, you know, that the notion of don't try to please everybody. You know, because otherwise yeah. you please nobody. And of course, there's a group that will possibly need collaboration, but will never buy it from you because they, they think it's a fundamental aspect of their own defensible differentiation. Yeah. There's a group that thinks, okay, with this, we can move faster. And that's the ones you need to find. You know, the market is at the end big enough. Exactly. Absolutely. So, so what did you learn in, this pro, in the process of selling this? Because, I mean, you don't sell this directly to an end user, but this is typically an embedded strategy, right? Yeah, so we do have an end user. You can download the Cord Chrome extension if you use Chrome, and then you can collaborate in any tool. There's over 100 tools that we support. And also you can just turn it on in your own website, your own development, staging environment. So you can use it anywhere and everywhere. I think there's like quite a few learnings from sales. I think one of them is, again, sort of the early stage. We are much more successful with late stage SaaS, with like, eight-figure, non-figure, eight-figure to nine-figure sort of revenue SaaS. 
they are an easier buyer for us because there, I think they already recognize again what their core competency is and they are much more at the stage that they want to like, you know, the ROI is much clearer on huge numbers and they know how long it'll take them to spin up and how much of an investment it is for them to spin up. With early stage SaaS, smaller startups, again, there are a lot of them just because there are a lot of them. So there are a lot of them that are also in our pipeline and are very happy to try this out and start with it. But there's, again, sort of a more of a tendency to imagine, you know, and they have years to build their software and they like, you know, building and owning it. And there's, this, oh, is, yeah. this reflects like a big change to, you know, the founder's vision and so on. So sometimes there we get this challenge. The other thing we see is, you know, we serve a lot of constituents that are excited about this within a company where we do have traction, like again, so the bigger SaaS vendors, we see the PMs usually very excited because they get this amazing, you know, interface that does everything they could imagine and put on the roadmap for collaboration and so much more. But, you know, at, at like very little cost and no time and you don't have to manage the details. The engineers are usually excited because we are a very engineering-friendly company where most of us are, you know, very experienced engineers with people with like over a decade at like Google, Facebook, these companies. So, you know, the API is very, very simple, powerful, it usually is, you know, great for them. And the business owners are usually really happy. We also have a support module. It helps them roll in their sort of support team into using this collaborative interface with a lot of options for them. And it helps with, again, sort of advancing the business goals. But the ones that are sometimes hurt from this in this process are the designers. So yeah. one of the surprising learning is that, you know, the designers are the ones who we, again, sort of take control from, we take power from in this. And this is, has been a very interesting learning for us. And we're trying to see how, you know, we can help them be a part of that journey and help them be, you know, sort of a, still retain kind of the aspects that are important to them on the brand and the uniformity of the experience and so on i can understand that challenge yeah if you look at it from a difference between the end user market or you're selling to a company that's going to use it as a yeah for themselves versus a company that's going to use it as part of the solution to sell it onwards it's completely different dynamics and politics playing at play there and yeah you will have one against you and one pro because some people want the speed and want the simplicity of it and others want to yeah don't want to kill the experience that they have in mind so I yeah. completely get that. So what has been a catalyst to get through that breakthrough moment? Well, the amazing thing for us is we have a very, very natural viral network effect. I can imagine. Exactly. Very few companies have it. I think the best example is Intercom. And Intercom, by the way, is a good example for us. First of all, I really value the team, the culture there. I think it's an amazing company. But second of all, they ran into very similar problems because in Intercom as well, every company wants to customize how Intercom looks and feels, but they had done a very, very smart thing and insisted to make it almost impossible, almost impossible to completely white label it and to completely change. And that again, sort of helped them both with more rapidly working on software because once you customize you have to becomes harder to you know develop your own software 
but also they made it recognizable. And people see Intercom and they know it's Intercom and that has helped them because SaaS vendors are clients of other SaaS vendors. So we've had the same thing. We've not done outbound. We've not really, you know, advertised or started reaching out or doing cold calling or any of that or paid placements or nothing. We basically, all of our deals today are word of mouth. There's SaaS vendors encountering this. Sometimes in newsletters and so on, we get picked up because it's an exciting proposition. But a lot of the time, because they saw it in one of our partner SaaS, and they're like, oh, this is cool. I want this for my product, right? So I think this is a very natural catalyst and advantage that we're trying to you know, foster and make sure it works. I can imagine. Yeah, that's, that's the holy grail at the end, you know, that you get your, the word of mouth to do the work for you and create a momentum. Possibly even is going to work between vendors when they see, okay, we're more successful if we work with those SaaS vendors, so they possibly even reach out to each other. Hey, if we get on the same collaboration platform, it's a win-win for everybody. That's, I um, think so. that's magic. Before we started this call, I talked about my book, The Remarkable Effect, which I published just well, around the time that you were starting your company. And it reveals the 10 traits of a remarkable software business. You've had a long history in business software as well. So what do you believe are traits that you need to embrace in order to create something that people keep talking about? Yeah, kind of lifting on your virality aspect. Yeah, that's very hard. I think there's a couple of things that we thought are key today for software. I think one that is unique that you don't hear a lot about that I think we've identified is that people don't just buy software in order to get a job done. They want to also learn how to do the job. And what I mean by this is... I look at something like Seed Legals. Seed Legals is a platform for starting a company in the UK. Basically, what they do is give you templates of contracts and allow you through their SaaS to change over, you know, key parts of these contracts, but they're already sort of pre-verified, very good contracts for starting a company and raising your first round and then hiring employees and so on. And what they could have done was just build a very generic sort of DocuSign or whatever, a place where you can upload documents and have them signed and like store them. But instead they built almost like a wizard and the product goes beyond just giving you these capabilities. It really is, it's a content platform and it really sort of enforces a way of doing things. So this is the difference between buying a sort of generic kind of, I don't know, drill and buying like a kit for building something. So I think the job to be done in a lot of tools is actually sort of educating how to get the end result. Yeah, Yeah, I see that a lot. I mean, it's sort of a common pattern. I call it taking people by the hand, not assuming they know, but, but really helping them to finish and do a better job with it. Because if that happens, they look good, everybody happy, you know? They'll talk about it because of the fact it makes them look good. Absolutely. So I think that's a huge trend. This yeah. You can see it in templates. You can see it in community yeah. help. You can see it in tutorials. Yeah, that's for sure. Exactly. To set people up to do, well, to make a difference at the end with your solution. I remember the talk that I had very early in my podcast series with Adam Martel from Gravity in Boston. And they also said, you know, we had fantastic solutions and we gave fundraisers sort of on a plate, which donors to reach out to. 
And then we started to talk to the fundraisers, and then they said, oh, yeah, we have this on, this on our list. Didn't get time to kind of go through that because I was so busy with other things. So they realized in order to get the maximum effect of what they were already doing well was to provide these fundraisers with the next step, like a drafted email that they could possibly customize and then get it out. And then it just took off. So it's really like, yeah, almost going doing the last mile. And that's an area where a lot of people just stop. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Thinking of the whole so many different solutions. I remember it also in the ERP solution for Unit 4. It's, you know, it's just an empty thing. And yeah, you do your transactions in that, but why not help people just go towards the very, very end with that? So 100%. I like that as a trait that you shared here. So what are you most proud of achieving so far? The solution is out there now. Or when did the solution launch? So we launched in January this year with the Chrome extension. And then we launched shortly thereafter with our API. And there's a few big partners. The one we like to talk about because they just have a ton of users and aren't very specific to an industry are Typeform, which are survey building yep. solution. They went live with this just a few months ago. Okay. So what are you most proud of? I mean, are there any anecdotes from customers or yeah, from these SaaS vendors that surprised you? Trying to think of some. I think there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of love. And I, I think I tweeted recently that, you know, just the feeling of happy customer that tells you, oh, this is perfect. This is amazing. I've, you know, imagined this for so long. I, I can't believe that somebody built this thing that I had in mind. All of that is just a hundred times more fulfilling and exciting and gives you like the motivation to go on than like fundraising. And I think in our circles and like founder circles and, you know, tech, Twitter, there's so much focus and so much talk about closing rounds and and fundraising and talking to investors and pitching to investors and, and all of that. And in the end of the day, you know, you get so much more, sort of fuel. I mean, not literally because capital is important, but you get so much more to the passion from that. So I'm very proud of all of these moments, I guess. Yeah. I like the way you phrase that because it tells also like what is important. I mean, there are companies that are profit first and the rest next. And there's companies that go value first and profit will come. And I also see like we are on a mission and at the end we need funding in order to kind of get the mission moving forward. But at the end, the mission is to make that change happen with, yeah. with our customers, with our users. Yeah. That's it, what gets you out of bed in the morning. I mean, the fact that you got 2 million on your bank account again because you did a pre-seed or a series A, whatever, that should only be helping on like, getting there, but it shouldn't be the purpose in the first place. <laughs> and sometimes yeah, I agree with you. I mean, the celebrations around those feet. Just those funding rounds are possibly what stands out most on their website. Yeah, I agree. And this is why, you know, we like didn't announce our seed round. We didn't announce our round A. We announced our public partnership with Typeform and rolled the news of our round A into this. So the press release was 10 months after we raised our round. And it was mostly about, you know, launching with 
Typeforms and a few other partners than, you know, this. So, uh, yeah, I do think, you know, there's a bit of distortion today. And you can also see founders that are just going for it because it's a great dopamine hit. And they're constantly around the VCs and going to the VC parties and like raising round after round after round, way, way ahead of their actual market traction. And, you know, maybe it works for them, for their own goals. But I don't know. It's just not, again, sort of my personal you know, kind of motivations were never the about squeezing the, the most money in, from investors. It was building a sustainable, very successful, very happy place to work. Yeah, I completely agree with you. This The right word is distortion. So, yeah, I mean, out of the lessons that you've learned and the tidbits of wisdom that you've gained in the meantime, what will be a do and what will be a don't to give to other people that aspire to be a founder, CEO of a software company or the ones that want to step up again? <laughs> this is great. These are also always very hard to come up with because there's so many details and, and every situation is a little bit different. It's so hard to say. I guess, well, I have to think about this for a while. <laughs> no problem. No problem. I mean, so what has been something that's, I mean, are there any regrets on your journey? Because you said, you know, we, you've been reluctant to become a CEO and you started your company. So you bite the bullet, you start doing it. Is there anything that's, surprised you in a positive way or, or that you that's something that you expect and that didn't turn out at all like that well i think you know one thing that was very important for me maybe it, i don't know how it falls into do or don't but i told you how i left facebook when my daughter was born and i was always very worried that sort of you have to sacrifice family for the company and that you know founders you know there's a lot of talk going around about either crazy stories like, you know, I've heard of women founders who, when they were in labor, they were still doing emails and customer calls and whatever, or, you know, founders that are just like, yeah, traveling all around the world, not seeing their kids or whatever. That's a part of why I didn't jump into this. And then I met a founder of a very successful big company in the UK. They're worth around $10 billion now. Wow. And I spoke to him and he said, you know, I see my kids every night, you know, here and there, maybe so it is twice possible. a year. Yeah, I have like the occasional, but it depends on, there's a lot of conscious sort of decision-making and choice there. So I think maybe the do is, do know that there are different ways to do this and that you decide, you know, you're just one person in the company. The company does not live on die, or die on you being on it 24-7. There's a lot of conscious choice. And if you're able to delegate well and you hire exceptional people around you and you give them the control and you set up the culture and you build, honestly, build the company around this. So if you're like an enterprise sales and you need high touch sales and you need to travel all over the world all the time, then yeah, that's going to be very hard. And if you like that lifestyle you want, that's great. But we actually, you know, wanted to be a product-led growth company. You know, we do inside sales a little bit and we mainly, you know, have our clients just try out the API and play with it and use it. And then we don't need to do, you know, as much whatever late night meetings and so on. Everyone's located in the UK. Everyone's in, in London. You know, we didn't go for remote multiple time zone stuff. We're delaying this as much as possible all of that helps and me managing to like drop my kid off at preschool every day, picking her up most days, being always at home, like 5 p.m. to have dinner with my family. 
Wise words, I like you to say, it's all about the choices that you make, the boundaries that you set, whether you want to have a high-touch software business or one that's low-touch with product-led growth, of course. And you can achieve the mission in a variety of ways just by looking at it, like what your priorities really are. So this is, yeah, I mean, definitely a do and a don't in there. Absolutely. I think there was a lot of value and wisdom in there. Thanks. So if you could ask anything from the audience, how could they help you? Wow. I don't know. I mean, I like chatting with, you know, people about products and challenges. So I think, you know, if you want to reach out, you can always reach out to me over Twitter at, at Nimrod Priel, probably will be spelled out when you look at the podcast and you can always DM or reach out to me and happy to chat. I'll be happy to, you know, hear what people think of Cord. So you can go and try it out on Cord.com and Good. We learn a lot from user feedback. Of course. Yeah, that's what it's all about at the end. 100%. Yeah, I wrote a blog this morning on LinkedIn that's about like what are the habits, not, not the traits, but what are the habits of companies that create a remarkable software company or software for their users? And so what are they deliberately doing different in the action? And that was definitely one of them. So thank you very much, Nimrod. Thank Thanks you, for Tom. sharing the wisdom. Thanks for sharing the things around the big idea, how you saw the problem arriving in the market and being bold enough to stand up, to stop your reluctance around doing this and to go do something about it. Because I think it solves a very important problem in a specific yeah, area of the market and for a particular kind of company. I like the point that you've taken on the importance of user happiness, customer happiness over you know, the celebrations of funding. I mean, I see your blog coming on that as well. So yeah, well, congratulations where you are right now and the success in the next 12, 24 months going forward because that's already, of course, going to be a decade for you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me and thanks for the great chat. It was, it really was a fun. pleasure. Likewise. And this ends my conversation with Nimrod. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning in to this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Nimrod Priel, CEO of Cord. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. 
Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.